0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Des Lovin. and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. My guest today is Marshall Van Alstein. Marshall is a professor at Boston University, co author of the best selling book, The Platform Revolution, and he's also the co author of the must read Harvard Business Review article, Pipelines, Platforms, and the New Rules of Strategy. Marshall, welcome.
1: It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for the interest in the work.
0: So let's talk about your research. What, what it, I mean, this word platform, which you're associated with, we, we, we hear it a lot in business. So let's, let's start with a definition. What exactly is a platform? What are we talking about here?
1: Oh, goodness. Academics will disagree, but you really can't make much progress unless you can try to be clear about it we think a platform is composed of a couple of different things we think a platform is an open architecture with rules of governance to facilitate interactions each of those things matters you know if it's open then you can invite third parties in to participate the rules of governance is what motivates them to do so and the interaction is what actually creates value so whether it's interacting with a person interacting with a ride or interacting with a search uh, there's some kind of interaction that takes value so we think all of those things are, are important components so platform is an open architecture with rules of governance to facilitate interactions.
0: Okay, now, I mean, obviously it's got a new context in, the, in this digital um, world we live in, but platforms are, I mean, we have traditional platforms. A marketplace is a platform, is it not?
1: Great question. So really you want to think about, you know, how do you distinguish this from a marketplace versus say, an open standard or things of that sort? An open marketplace doesn't necessarily have the rules of governance. Anyone can come and go. If there's a bad actor or a bad behavior, you need to be able to kick them off the platform. So if someone gets cheated on a ride on Uber, Uber will try to take care of it. Or if um, you try to cheat someone on eBay, they'll usually try to make you whole. You need to be able to police bad behavior. You also need to be able to steer the architecture in case you need to take it in a new direction. So that distinguishes it from a totally open standard. So it's this ability to police and try to promote good interactions and healthy interactions and prevent exploitation and bad behavior. Um, the other element of the uh, rules, it allows you to monetize. If it's a totally open, come-as-you-go marketplace, then you don't actually have a control point. So you need a control point that allows you to monetize. So it's a quasi-open architecture with these rules, uh, which will, should distinguish it from both a totally open standard on the one hand and you know a marketplace on the other.
0: And, and central to your argument is that the emergence of these platforms... Um we can talk about examples in a minute. actually changes the whole the, the rules of strategy, if you like. is that Is that a fair assessment?
1: Oh, I completely believe that that's the case. So we would argue that the fundamental rules of strategy today in a platform context are really different than the rules of uh, product design. Um, I'll give you one or two simple examples, but then let me see if I can back into the logic as to why we think this would be the case. One of the things that we learn in traditional strategy is creating these barriers to entry. How are you gonna protect your margins? How are you gonna protect your profits? In a platform space, often you're trying to create permissionless entry. You want as many buyers and suppliers on your platform as possible. If you're Uber, you want many uh, drivers and riders on your platform. If you're Airbnb, you want many hosts and guests. If you're Google, you want the searches on your platform as much as possible. Now we have to twist it. It was, you know, in the Portarian world, it was barriers to entry for competitors. Uh, and, you know, limiting the market power of buyers and suppliers, but here it's permissionless entry of buyers and suppliers on the platform. So uh, so that's just one example. i can give you a bunch of different examples, but why is this happening? Let me see if I can give you a deeper structural argument. We think it's not just the rules of strategy that's changing. We think it's actually entire structure of what's taking place in the economy that's changing. We're seeing rise of absolutely gigantic firms. If you look at... Uh, Google, for example, it's 90% of search. If you look at Amazon, it's got more than two thirds of the uh, book sales online and offline. And it's actually now the number three search engine uh, in the United States. Um, You know, if you look at Alibaba, it's 80% of all e-commerce transactions in China. Even Microsoft still has 85% or higher desktop market share. These platforms are huge. What we're seeing is the emergence of monopolistic firms in the internet era analogous to the monopoly firms that we saw in the industrial era? What's interesting is it's the opposite reason. A hundred years ago, we were getting supply side economies of scale, massive fixed costs, low marginal costs, so we got uh, monopolies in railroads and steel, in semiconductors, in you know um, you know telecommunications and copper wire and oil, and electricity. Today, we're getting these monopolies on network effects also called demand economies of scale so the mechanism is different in this case users create value for other users which attracts users which helps them create value which helps them create uh attract other users so what's happening is the demand curve is shifting out and to the right as opposed to the supply curve shifting down and to the left so it's the reason
0: Okay, so give it. So let's, let's make something concrete. So take Amazon, for example. Take, take traditional Amazon where they're selling books. How does, how does that, that um, economies of demand work in that space?
1: Great question. Wonderful example. So in a traditional firm, you might actually own the books and sell what you're publishing. Amazon is able to sell third-party content. Now, as a matter of fact, I believe uh, a, the bulk of their marketplace revenues actually come from third-party selling. But this also creates a positive feedback of merchants selling to consumers through Amazon, which attracts consumers to Amazon, which attracts other merchants to Amazon. The attractiveness, they become a nexus of transactions, of interactions taking place. When you well, the last time you made to purchase on Amazon, was it Amazon that manufactured or owned or controlled the product, or was it a third party? And what's happening is that they're capturing value from third parties that are meeting on top of their platform and adding value. That's just the books. If you also take, for example, Amazon web services, the bulk of the value is third parties building their enterprises, building their stores and infrastructure on top of Amazon. So third parties are making these investments in construction on top of the Amazon digital real estate. If you contrast that with a traditional Walmart, for example, they don't have the third parties doing as much of the value add to the traditional retail. So Amazon has not only the value of traditional retail of the things that it sells; it's also got this external ecosystem of third-party retail that it's also controlling through its ecosystem.
0: Presumably, so, you know, part of this too is is, is people who, who make the purchases. Not to forget that side of it. People who make the purchases, also then recommend other books or recommend the books they've written. Sorry, they've they've purchased. Yes, that's a value again.
1: That's a perfect example. So again, when we're looking about network effects, we're interested in users creating value for other users or a product or service that becomes more valuable as people use it. Think of all the user-generated content on Amazon. You've got at least two different kinds of it. One is you generate content of reviews. You know, a book isn't just a book. In this case, now you've got this huge raft of analyses of the book. You look at the folks like it, the critiques, the the positives and the negatives about the book, which helps do a better match, and folks are more likely to buy the things that they want. In addition, so that's the explicit user-generated content. In addition, Amazon's able to use recommender systems to capture the implicit um, user-generated content. So your buying behavior is then used to help recommend books and other products and services to other people. That's implicit. So it's not just the humans doing recommendations it's also machines doing recommendations based on the patterns the humans generate both of these factors are forms of user generated content making the platform more valuable amazon doesn't have to create it the users are creating it.
0: okay so you mentioned the word ecosystem that's another very popular word at the moment ecosystems but what is what i mean and and value being created in different ways what does that do then for the traditional value chain as we understand it? You know, people a lot of people listening to this podcast would have learned sort of Porter's five forces and they, will, they would understand a Porterian view of the world. But this seems to, to disrupt that completely.
1: So this is another great question. So what do we teach in business school? We teach, you know, Porter's value chain. You look at the you know, inbound logistics, you look at the supply chains, you look at the optimization, you look at the outbound logistics, all of those things. And part of what you learn in then operations management is to, optimize the portions of that supply chain and the firm is in effect controlling each of those steps as you add value through each of those different steps. It's not how platforms work. In a platform context, we we, we describe it as a shift from a pipeline to a platform. You take the, the production and consumption and you shift them off the platform. So Uber isn't making the rides, the drivers that it hires are. In Airbnb, they're not owning the rooms or creating experience, the hosts are doing that. In Amazon's case, Amazon's only selling a fraction of the goods, third parties are doing this. In Google's case, Google's not creating the web pages, you and I are creating the web pages. Those are the searches on top. The job of the platform at that point is to curate massive amounts of content that third parties are creating. Notice a huge distinction. In the pipeline business, the firm is articulating exactly what's being produced and it's adding value to different stages. In the production of a platform business, where the the, the production consumption is shifted up and off the platform, third parties are articulating their need for a ride or service and they're supplying it. So you're not even specifying necessarily what is going to be done at any given instant, but you're enabling the curation and third party production. Curation and quality control is even more important. So as we said earlier, you want as much permissionless participation as possible but you also need the quality controls to make sure that it's a healthy experience. So the job of the platform is to enable the third parties to bring their resources to the platform and do the job on top, but you then have to control the quality to make sure it's a positive experience in each of these cases. So it's no longer a, pla- a pipeline. We're controlling it, doing each of the value-added steps yourself. You're inviting third parties into the ecosystem to do it for you.
0: And this, is, this, is, this gives rise to the, to the inverted firm.
1: Ah, okay. Now you've hit a really important idea. Now let's take one additional step too, by the way, that also shows why these things grow so fast. So if you you look at the platform firms, they seem to be really young in comparison to traditional firms. Notice as we shifted from pipeline to platform, what's your marginal cost of production? It's zero. You're not creating the costs. You don't have to create the posts. You don't have to create the rides. You don't have to create the, uh, the surges. Third parties are actually creating that on your behalf. Why does this create the inverted firm? Okay. If it's the case that users are creating value for others' users, where is this gonna scale? Inside the firm or outside the firm? Well, Once you've asked the question, it's obvious what's happened. It's blindingly obvious there are more users outside the firm than there are employees inside the firm. What this implies is that value-creating activities that used to be controlled inside the firm are now moved outside the firm. This means managerial attention for whatever value creating activity the firm used to do, now must take on an external counterpart. Previously, when you're optimizing the internal supply chain and you're controlling the steps of production, now you have to invite people you don't know to bring you ideas you don't have and orchestrate their activity. This is activity done outside the firm rather than inside, which is why we call it an inverted firm. Network effects don't scale inside the firm as easily as outside, so you move value creating activities from inside to outside. And the inverted front.
0: Marshall, thank you very much. I'm
1: delighted to have, uh, cover any of those topics at your convenience. So it's, it's a big open space, and thank you for your interest.
0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.